Welcome to the Waukesha Bible Church Podcast. We believe the Bible tells a single story, and at the center of that story is Jesus. If you like what you hear today, additional sermons, teaching sessions, and written material can be found on our website at waukeshawbible.org. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Our scripture today is uh, Psalm 22, uh, if you want to turn there or follow along on the screen. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you I was cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me, like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot shard and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. And O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him but has heard when he cried to him. From you, my praise in the great congregation, my vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship, Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Thank you so much. Please be seated. We are in Psalm 22. We are between Passover and Pentecost, and we are going to do several weeks of considering this idea of missions, and we will begin in Psalm 22. Our primary idea throughout the series will be that he, 
Yahweh, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, rule over the nations, and from that we are to be encouraged. The experience and promises to David find their ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. So what David describes concerning himself in Psalm 22 and the affliction that visits us all will ultimately point to our Lord Jesus Christ. The proclamation of God's deliverance to the afflicted is the fuel, knowing that God has indeed delivered us from our greatest enemy is the fuel that propels the mission of the local church to proclaim the rule of God and his redemptive work to all the nations of the world. What we do see inside the psalm is that the very one who afflicted the king shall one day bow down before the king. David describes his assaultants as bulls, as lions, as dogs. But one day every bull... Every lion and every dog shall confess with their mouths that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that is the message, one of redemption, one of a finished work that is to be proclaimed among all the nations and to all following generations. Now, when we look at Psalm 22, when you consider this particular psalm independent of the New Testament, the conclusion that one would come to is that David did not see himself as a prefiguring of Jesus Christ. So in the Old Testament, we have the shadow, we have this type, and the ultimate fulfillment, the one to whom it points, is the antitype or substance who is Jesus. So as we read Psalm 22, it is absolutely imperative that we ground it in its historical context. David did not see himself in this psalm, as is true of most messianic psalms, as a prefiguring of Jesus Christ. But when we turn to the New Testament and see how Jesus and the author of Hebrews references this psalm, we see that this psalm is pointing us to Jesus Christ. We can also see how this psalm, Psalm 22, stands in relation to the other psalms. We know that inside of book one, there are five books within the psalms that are echoing or reflecting the five books of the Pentateuch. Psalm 22 is inside of the first book. Some have suggested, and I think the comparison is worthy of view, is Psalm 22. You see the good shepherd who will indeed lay his life down for his sheep. Psalm 23, we see the great shepherd who leads, guides, and provides for his people. And then in Psalm 24, the chief shepherd, where we see the glory of God radiating from the one whom we call Jesus. We see all this inside the psalm. But our desire is to look at the psalm itself Psalm 22 has two primary parts, verses 1 through 21, where we see the king's experience, and then verses 22 to the end of the Psalm 31, where we see the king's proclamation. But what I'd like to do is begin with prayer before we jump into the actual text. So let us pray. Our Father, this morning we come as your people and we humbly submit to your governance, to your rule over the nations. This rule that you exercise is never in the abstract. It is individual and it is personal. We know that Christ alone is indeed our hope in life and death. It truly is impossible to know and feel the awful emotional distance the psalmist felt. And when we, even for a moment, believe you have turned your face against us. How thankful we are that the blood of Jesus has secured for us a place before you. It is a place, a reception of acceptance and forgiveness and welcome. We know that King David never thought that what he experienced and wrote spoke of one greater than himself 
And yet in your wisdom and providence, all of this points us to the greater David. We fully accept that Jesus is the greater king. And it is before him we bow this morning. Holy Spirit, we ask you to open our hearts and minds to these truths. That you would work powerfully in us and through us to those around us. Father, we bring this prayer as an offering through the advocacy and intercession of the Son in spirit. Amen. Look with me at Psalm 22. We begin with verses 1 through 21. We see three primary ideas or thoughts contained within the psalm. David describes an experience that all of us have encountered. But if you have your Bibles and you are looking at the psalm, you have three distinct sections. Verses 1 through 5, then 6 through 11, then 12 through 21. In verses 1 through 5, you have an unsettling cry. Notice what the psalmist says in verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, we will jump to Jesus in just a moment of Matthew 24. But I'm wanting us to stay rooted in its historical setting. David shouts out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Notice verse 11 of this psalm. It says, be not far from me, for distress is near. Stanza 19, but you, O Yahweh, be not far off. So the psalmist has this agonizing and unsettling cry. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How dark and how difficult. And then in verses 3 and following, notice he begins with a negative. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Oh, my God, stanza 2, I call by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I have no rest. And David's experience is the shared experience of all of humanity. We've all been at that place when we are crying out to God, and it seems as if his ear is deaf. And yet in verse 3, there's the positive, yet you are holy. He makes this affirmation in the midst of his struggle. Yet you are holy, enthroned upon the praises of Israel. And that is true of most psalms. You have this darkness that's cast on his audience, but it resolves with these statements of affirmation, but yet you, O God, are holy. But we have initially this unsettling cry. David shouts out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the second thing we then see is begun in verse 6. You have this mocking crowd. I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men despised by the people. All who see me mock me. A very dark statement, 6 through 8. But again, Notice in verse 9, yet you are he who brought me out of the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breasts. Upon you I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. So throughout the first section of this psalm, there's this negative statement and a positive. This affirmation, yet you are holy. Yet you are he who brought me out of the womb. David shares an experience that is common to all of us this darkness, this struggle, in those moments when we think perhaps that God is not listening to us, that perhaps God is against us. And the psalmist, King David, feels that weight. And yet he resolves that tension by affirming what is true. Yet you, O God, are holy. Yet you are the one who brought me out of the womb. And then beginning in verse 12, this foreboding enemy It is interesting in verses 11 and following how this enemy is described. 
In verse 12, his enemy is described as a bull, the bulls of Bashan. In verse 13, they open wide their mouth at me as a lion that tears and roars. Verse 14, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. Verse 16, for dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. Verses 1 through 21, David describes his experience, an experience that is shared by us all. It is unsettling when we think that God perhaps has turned himself from us. Thankfully in Jesus, this indeed is not true. But that is the experience of the psalmist. And it is an experience that has visited us all. David speaks of being mocked by his audience, by the crowd surrounding him. Then David speaks of his foreboding enemy. Bulls, lions, dogs. In the first two sections, there's statements of affirmation. Yet you are holy in the midst of all this, God. I still believe that you are holy. You are the one who has brought me forth from my mother's womb. You've got this. You're governing this. Even though the heart of the psalmist aches, he still affirms. And then notice what happens in verses 19 and tw- through 21. There's this prayer, but you, O Yahweh, be not far off. O my strength, hasten to my help. Deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion, from the horns of the wild oxen. You have answered me. He prays a prayer of deliverance. God, this is what I'm experiencing. And if we were transparent, if we were able to be open and share where we are in life, I am sure that we have had David's experience. Perhaps even now we find ourselves with this unsettling cry. God, what are you doing in my life? It makes zero sense to me as an individual. It seems as if I am under the attack of others. All my enemies seem to be bulls and lions and dogs. And yet, God, in the midst of this, I am affirming that you are holy, that you are the one who brought me forth, and now I am praying to you that you would deliver me. When you look at the first section, it is absolutely impossible not to jump to Jesus. We know that the Old Testament is a type, it's a shadow We know that Jesus Christ is the anti-type. He is the ultimate fulfillment of all types. We know that King David, from the line of Judah, will have an offspring, a son, who will fulfill the seed promise of Genesis 3.15. And we know who that is. His name is Jesus. When you look at what is said in this psalm, and that what Jesus says of himself on the cross, you see these parallels. And there's far more that we could absolutely share this morning in the short time that we have together. But there are four key thoughts. Psalm 22, 18 parallels Matthew 27, 35, when Jesus says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Psalm 22, verse 7, Matthew 27, verse 39, All who see me mock me, they make mouths at me, they wag their heads, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads. You see the parallel between the experience of King David in shadow type form and then that of Jesus. Now, in reading Psalm 22, we would not have picked that up, but because we have the New Testament counterpart, we see its fulfillment in Jesus. In Psalm 22, verse 8, 
Matthew 27, 43, he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him, for he said, I am the Son of God. And then finally, perhaps the most famous, Psalm 22, verse 1 in Matthew 27, verse 46. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We see that King David endured affliction just like us. We know that it is ultimately seen in the person and work of Jesus Christ who bore the sins of the world in order that we might become the righteousness of Christ. It is in this psalm we see and hear the anguish of our Lord as he offers himself up as the sacrifice for his people. It is through his death, his burial, his resurrection and ascension that he secures the authority and right to rule over the nations. Notice what happens inside this text. You have this initial experience that David and all endure, but it shifts from that experience and these affirmations and prayer to one of praise and celebration and exaltation beginning in stanzas 22 through 31. Notice what happens inside our passage. It says, I will surely recount your name to my brothers in the midst of the assembly. I will praise you. There's a significant shift that takes place between verses 21 and 22. You who fear Yahweh, praise him, all the seed of Jacob, glorify him, and stand in awe of him, all you seed of Israel. Now notice stanza 24, for he has not despised you, he has not abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, he has not hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him for help, he heard. We move from David's experience to David's praise, response, celebration. When you look at Psalm 22 and you see how it is fulfilled in Jesus, there's a larger story taking place in which this psalm and Jesus fit into. Daniel chapter 7 tells us that the Son of Man shall receive the authority of the nations from the ancient of days. Isaiah 53, verses 10 and 11, and chapter 54, verse 1, tells us that this transfer of authority that Jesus receives will happen because of the Son's obedience through his suffering and affliction wrought at the cross. So it is what he endures in the first 21 verses that allows his name to be proclaimed to the nations. Matthew 28, 18 assures us that in his death, his burial, resurrection, and ascension, he has received all the authority promised to him in Daniel 7. And that's what we begin to see in verses 22 through 31. And what is so amazing to me is that the very ones who afflicted the king will one day bow down before the king. Jesus Christ receives this honor. The pattern in Psalm 22 is intentional. First the suffering, then the glory that is to follow. It is the crucifixion that leads to his exaltation. When you shift to verses 22 through 31, notice the pattern that's being described. There's this emphasis that we see. It says in verses 22 through 26 that we are to tell it to the congregation. Notice the repeated statement, I will surely recount your name to my brothers, this is King David, as a Jew, 
in the midst of the assembly, all you seed of Jacob, you seed of Israel, there's this repetition, verse 25, of you is my praise in the great assembly. I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. The afflicted will eat, be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise Yahweh. May your heart live forever. What is really surprising, and I believe that the psalm is intentional, is the pattern that you see, suffering before exaltation and glory. We see in the following statement, the psalmist's response, one of exaltation and praise, is that it begins in the assembly of the Jews. We know Paul's pattern to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. You see that throughout. But it begins in verses 22 through 26. The deliverance that the psalmist experienced, he now proclaims to his people. We've already noted how it begins with my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Then in verses 11 and 19, O Yahweh, be not far from me. And then in verse 24, he has not hidden his face from him. God has made good on his promises. And so the psalmist, experiencing this deliverance and rescue from the affliction, goes to his own people and proclaims the goodness of God. God has answered my prayer. He has been true to his character. He is holy. This is who God is. He tells it to the congregation. And he calls for his fellow Jews to listen attentively to this deliverance, to this psalm, to this message. Now notice in verses 27 and 28. He shifts from the congregation, the assembly of the Jews, to his people. And he says then in verse 27, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to Yahweh. Remember, those who afflicted him will now bow down before him. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to Yahweh. All the families of the nations will worship before you. There's this parallelism that's taking place in verse 27. Notice then verse 28, for the kingdom is Yahweh's. And he rules over the nations. That's not some light statement simply passing over our minds. He rules the nations. I sometimes think when we use this idea of God reigning, we think it's passive, that God simply looks over what's happening and has oversight. But this word means governance. God is actually ordering what's taking place. He is reclaiming what is rightfully his as creator-redeemer. God indeed has this. He is in control. Tell it to the nations. It's a statement of praise that will indeed cover the earth. This is God's vision, a knowledge of God covering the earth as the waters cover the sea. It's a repeating refrain throughout the Bible. It says, for, in verse 28, the kingdom is Yahweh's, and he rules over the nations. Now, there are two thoughts that I'd like to tease out just slightly. This idea of God reigning has two broader ideas. The first is this, that his rule is universal. And the second, that his rule is powerful. God has governance over everything and everyone. And the governance that he exercises over the nations is indeed powerful. 
Listen to how this statement is made. The reign of God is indeed universal. It says in Psalm 2, 8, Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. Psalm 46, verse 10, Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Psalm 47, verse 8, God reigns over the nations. We see this affliction in verses 1 through 21 and then this celebration in 22 through 31. God has delivered his people from their affliction. Jesus Christ has received for us our affliction. And his deliverance means that he is Lord and that he is alive. That is to be proclaimed first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. All nations everywhere at all times shall one day praise the Lord. Do you hear what I'm saying? Every single nation that has ever existed will one day confess with their tongue that Jesus is Lord and that God has raised him from the dead and it will be to the glory of God the Father. You and I as a fellowship, as people, we have this hope. God reigns over the nations. It is a universal reign. Why do we fear the face of the unbelieving? I do not think we should passively sit by and do nothing. Moreover, praying and doing the right thing with hope-filled patience and weight-bearing endurance are not passive activities. Nonetheless, let us not fear that somehow humanity is operating outside the rule of God. We look at our current situation and we sometimes think everything is going to in a handbag. Hey, folks, God rules over the nations. I know the end of this story. And that rule is not passive, it is active. Not only is the reign of God universal, but the reign of God, the rule of God, the governance of God is powerful. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 59, 5, You, O Yahweh, God of hosts, the God of Israel, awake to punish all the nations. But you, O Lord, laugh at them, you scoff at all the nations. Psalm 66, 7, he rules by his might forever. His eyes keep watch on the nations. Pour out your wrath upon the nations which do not know you. We take no joy in knowing that those who reject God will one day be punished. But trust me, justice will be served. The reign of God is powerful. You see, God does what he wants with what is his. And when he does it, it is always right. God laughs at and punishes all nations who refuse him, Psalm 2 tells us. No nation, past, present, or future, dictates to God what he will do. Not one nation ever controls the outcome of the story. God does. God does what he desires to do. There is no gap between God's design and the exercising of power to accomplish what he wills. How this works out in and through free moral agents is beyond my ability to process. I don't know how he does it, but he does do it. The reign of God described in Psalm 22 and throughout the book of Psalms is a universal reign, and it is a powerful reign. God does what he wants with what is his, and when he does it, he is always right. Praying for the persecuted church enables me to see wider than just my own circumstances and situations. 
when we pray for the persecuted church, it tells me that our God reigns. God does indeed rule over the nations and all things created will one day be bow before him without outside coercion and humble adoration and will profess with their voices that he is Lord and it will be to the glory of God the Father. Now when we turn back to our text in Psalm 22, notice what it says. Verse 29, all the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust will bow before him, even he who cannot keep his soul alive. Psalm 29 assures us that the promises and purposes of God will indeed be accomplished. What I find interesting about this psalm, you begin with this statement of affliction. You have this agonizing cry, my God, my God, why have you turned yourself against me? All my enemies mock me, these bulls and lions and dogs. Help me, O God, I in the midst of my affliction confess that you are holy, that you have given birth to me. And I pray for my deliverance. And God is faithful to deliver us from our affliction. We see the ultimate fulfillment of all this in the person and work of Jesus. He quotes Psalm 22. He tells us that he has been afflicted. He's been delivered from that affliction in his resurrection and ascension. And now we are to proclaim that he is Lord and he is alive to his people, to the nations. And now notice verses 30 and 31. Their seed will serve him. It will be recounted about the Lord to the coming generation. To the coming generation. You and I are not the end game of the story at Waukesha Bible Church. We've been around for almost 70 years, just this one church. And generations have come and gone. And you know what we want to do? And we want to ensure that the message stated in Psalm 22, continues to the next generation. Notice what it says. It will be recounted about the Lord to the coming generation. They will come and and will declare his righteousness to a people who will be born, that he has done it. He has done it. What are we to be telling our children? That Jesus is Lord and that he is alive. And that it is finished. I believe the heartache we have for our children, for our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, is that they know Jesus. That Jesus is alive. That Jesus is Lord. And that the redemptive work that he accomplished on the cross is finished. And we must simply accept him by faith. What an incredible way to finish a psalm. Notice what we are to be telling our children. Many have suggested that the last statement in Psalm 22, that he has done it, can equally be translated and perhaps was even quoted in John 19.30 by our Lord, it is finished. It is done. There's nothing more for us to do. What we could not do, God can and Jesus indeed has. It's interesting in the Amplified Bible, as it expands on this verse, says that it is finished as an option as to how we read it is done. The psalm began with a cry of desperation and it ends with a word of exaltation, of celebration. It is done. It is finished. 
It is because of his suffering that he now rules over the nations. It is because of the satisfaction of his labor that we can raise up our voices in unison and say, he rules over the nations. Although we find ourselves afflicted, be confident that God knows you in your affliction, and he does indeed rescue and deliver us from those afflictions. Thus, we can affirm and testify that you are holy, that you are the one who brought me into being. And Father, we do indeed pray for our rescue and our deliverance. But we give you praise for what is described in Psalm 22, 1 through 21, is fulfilled in Jesus. And thus we proclaim to our peers that he is Lord. And we proclaim to the nations he is Lord. And we proclaim to our children and our children's children that he is Lord. That is the message that we are to bring to the nations. Let us close with five quick thoughts. When we look at Psalm 22, what God has done for David in his affliction, he will do for us in ours. God knows you on a very personal, intimate level. And what God has done in Jesus through his affliction, he has done for us. He became for us our substitutionary sacrifice. The Father laid on him our sin. We accept that by faith and we receive from him his righteousness. The third thing, the very ones who afflicted the king shall one day bow down before the king. We know how this story ends. Jesus is Lord. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. We know that. This psalm affirms that. The fourth thing, that in his sacrificial and substitutionary death, he has freed us from sin's affliction and authority. The work done in our behalf for our sin is finished. We are a free people. Let us now teach all nations and the coming generations this simple message. It is finished. And the final thing, the fifth thing is this. Jesus is king and he does rule. He governs the nations. As a family of families, there are so many things that we have opportunity to engage in. And as a body, there are so many parts unseen but totally necessary. And every part feeds the whole where we have liberty and we can say Jesus is Lord and Jesus is indeed alive and the redemptive work he did in our behalf is finished. When that grips you, communicating and serving becomes easy. Please stand with me as we close in prayer. Father, we thank you that we as a free people, can gather in your name, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We have come together to see one another, but most importantly, to hear from you through your word. We are here because you have ordered it. We are here because you do rule over the nations. We are here because it is finished. There is nothing happening right now in our world that you do not control. And all of the pieces and the minutia are singing your praise and working together for the good of your goal. Today we can rest knowing Psalm 22 has been and is being fulfilled. Therefore, right now, Father, we give you praise for what you have done, are doing, and will do. 
May our eyes be open to see, our ears so that we might hear, and our mouths so that we might proclaim widely, it is finished, it is done. Today, Father, we thank you for allowing us the opportunity to gather as your people in the authority of the Son and Spirit. We submit these words. Amen.